church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. The season of Advent starts during the darkest days of the year. And I don't know about you, but I am certainly feeling that. Dark, dark mornings make it hard to wake. Cold and wet days dreary and dim. In the midst of all that gloom, the twinkling lights on a tree or a steaming mug of apple cider or the dancing flame of the Advent candles are like a whisper of hope. Light, light breaking in where you least expect it. Hope, peace. Historically, Advent has been the season of preparation, much like Lent before the season of Easter. And the wisdom here is that making space for the joy of incarnation or making space for the joy of resurrection takes intentionality and focus and a returning, a returning to our deepest and truest longings, a returning to the intimate places within us that we've lost sight of where God is delighted to dwell. And historically, a key practice during the seasons of Advent and Lent was fasting. Now, this morning, as we've been in this series of making space for Christ, we've been looking at practices. Today, we're looking at the practice of fasting. And I know what you're thinking. Finally, they're talking about fasting. I was just waiting for this Sunday, especially during Advent. I just thought this would be a good time to not eat tasty things. I realize it's a little ironic to talk about fasting in the weeks leading up to Christmas, right? If anything, these weeks from Thanksgiving to Christmas time are given over to whatever tasty things we desire. Eggnog, peppermint jojos, those little minty bells, right? Like, this is the time to indulge. Okay, to be clear, as we talk about fasting today, I'm not necessarily advocating a fast from food. Uh, in the devotional that we gave out for this season that goes with the sermon series, the recommended fast is a fast from social media or media of some kind. So don't worry, you get to eat. Uh, but I do think that it's worth looking at this practice of fasting because Fasting shows up in religious traditions all around the world. Uh, we see it everywhere, and we might want to ask why. I suspect that fasting, for most of us here, is pretty unfamiliar, uh, other than maybe as a form of dieting, like an intermittent fasting kind of thing. Uh, the idea of fasting might conjure up for us pallid, pinched, white-robed monks shivering in their cells through a cold Catholic Lent. Uh, and for, you know, depending on who you are, maybe a cold Catholic Lent sounds like a good time, uh, not for all of us. I suspect few of us would consider fasting a really viable option, like something we would reach for, for expressing our spirituality. 
our culture has largely agreed with the British philosopher David Hume that the monkish, monkish virtues with which he included fasting cross all desirable ends, stupefy the understanding, and harden the heart, obscure the fancy, and sour the temper. Is that true? And if not, then what might fasting be good for? Well, to start with, I think we should notice that fasting is seen all throughout the Bible, and it's a practice that is just assumed to be part of life with God. We see this particularly in a few kinds of circumstances, and I think this is interesting. Uh, first, we see fasting in times of intense need. So we think here maybe of Esther. Uh, when a plot is discovered to destroy all of the Jews living in exile in Persia, Esther, who is the queen and herself a Jew and married to the king, she has to risk her life to save her people. And so she asks the whole community to fast and to pray for her. And she also asks her handmaidens to fast with her uh, in preparation. We see fasting in the Bible in times of intense grief. So, for example, uh, when King Saul is killed in battle, the people fast in their grief as an expression of national mourning. We see fasting in times of repentance and recognition of wrongdoing. Uh, in the story of Jonah, when the prophet goes to Nineveh and speaks against the intense social injustice and violence that is being done in that culture, the whole city repents with fasting. Or in the book of Nehemiah, when the people are returning from exile and returning to God, uh, we see them fasting with mourning over the wrongdoing they're realizing. In times of seeking social justice, we see fasting prescribed. In Isaiah 58, the prophet proclaims that the kind of fast God chooses is aimed to loose the bonds of injustice, to loose the bonds, uh, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free. And finally, we see fasting in the Bible in times of preparation. And the most prominent example of this we heard this morning is Jesus going into the wilderness in preparation for the beginning of his ministry. Uh, but we also see this in the early church several times when the, the church is going to set aside, uh, apart Paul for ministry, for example. There's fasting and prayer. I think there's a few things we could draw out of all these examples to start to look at what the good of fasting might be. Uh, and to be clear, just like Mike pointed out last week with prayer, fasting is for us. It's something that is for our well-being and not something we do to please God. Fasting is first a practice that brings our whole embodied self together in expression of need. And second, fasting helps us to grow in turning our attention toward a dependence on God. So let's look at each of those in turn. First off, embodiment. Fasting is first a practice. So when you're do doing fasting, you are setting aside a good thing, uh, usually food, but it could be any good thing. You're setting that aside for a limited amount of time in order to bring your whole embodied self together in one integrated expression. Uh, first off, I want to underscore that whenever we set something aside in fasting, uh, that thing is good. It's not better or holier to go without. There's nothing particularly good about going without. And I think that's important to say because I think a lot of us were raised in spiritualities where if you gave something up, you were doing better. You were more holy. And I think that's a distortion. 
Rather, in fasting, we choose to set aside a good thing in order to embody physically what we are thinking or feeling or experiencing so that our hearts, our minds, and our bodies are one expression before God. And I think this could be really good for us because we tend to be a very disembodied culture. Uh, When we think about spiritual practices, we tend to think about things that are largely mental or emotional, psychological. We don't tend to think about things that are embodied and physical. Uh, When I was younger, I used to joke that my body was a vehicle to put books in front of my brain. And at the time, I thought that was funny, and the the older I get, I see that's kind of problematic. Uh, In fact, the older I get, the more my body is insisting on being noticed with aches and pains. Especially where big emotions are concerned, we have been taught to dissociate from our bodies. Because, uh, so for example, we attend funerals, and we apologize when we have displays of grief. We, we feel like what we have to do is to quietly cry or, or shed a tear quietly, but weeping or having our body in on the grief is excessive in our culture. It's embarrassing. Big emotions become an embarrassment to us, and we try to contain them. I actually very frequently hear from people the fear that they are too much in their expression of emotion, that their emotions are too much for those around them, and that's unacceptable. In many of the biblical examples above, fasting was an embodied expression of grief or loss or intense need or desire for restitution, for justice, or the need to repent. To set aside a perfectly good thing, food, for a short period is one way of getting the body in on what we are feeling and thinking. And that's how we see it used in the Bible over and over again. It can also be a way to join in with what others are thinking and feeling. Because sometimes fasting can be expression of joining in solidarity with another's grief or another's intense need or their desire for justice. We might think here of the story of Job, whose friends, after the complete collapse of his life, join him and they sit with him silently in fasting while holding his tragedy together. We're in need of ways to integrate our body with our grief, to bring our body in line with our loss or our sense of lack or our desperation or our hope or our our repentance or our rededication. Engaging in a practice like fasting can allow us to integrate our whole selves when the circumstances of our lives demand that we stop and be present to what is happening. And fasting can help us to be here, now, fully present to our experience or the experience of our loved ones. Secondly, fasting is a practice of giving up something good for a short time in order to express our dependence on God and to grow our capacity to wait. Fasting leaves room for us to find God meeting our needs when we can't meet them ourselves. It makes us more prepared to wait on God rather than seizing control of a situation's. One of the ways we don't often leave space for Christ is in our need for security or for results. In times of grief, intense need, longing, desire for change, we want to immediately take the situation into our hands and act as if we're entirely alone and the whole thing is up to us. And we are so used to being able to grab hold and satisfy our needs right away. Do you remember life before Amazon Prime? (laughs) 
I remember a time when four to six days shipping was just like pretty quick. Like, wow, four to six days? Wow. Free shipping? Hmm. Sometimes when I order from Amazon these days, I'm a little appalled because they'll be, you know, I'll be putting something in my cart and they'll be like, it'll be here in four hours. And I'm like, whoa, 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 like slow down. I don't need it today, but you can have a bathroom break. Like, please, <laughs> don't rush. It's so normal now for us to assume we can get whatever we want or need quickly. We have credit payment plans if we can't afford what we want. We distract ourselves from negative emotions by launching an app on our phone, by streaming any show we want instantly, by a trip to the fridge. So when we come up against what we cannot control or fix, we are unprepared for the experience, and we're unaccustomed to waiting on God. Used wisely, Fasting from food can become a springboard to remind us, one, I do not need to have every desire filled immediately. I can wait. And two, not everything is under my control and I am in need of help. Now, if we do fast from a meal, our hunger can become a prayer. Just as this hunger, even so do I need you, God. If we fast from television, then the resulting silence can be a prompt to rest in God's embrace. If we fast from social media, it can be to engage in what God is doing right here now in our presence. Okay, so if fasting can be such a helpful practice, then why is it not part of our lives? Why has it just dropped off the radar for most of American Christianity? I think one of the reasons is that among the spiritual practices, fasting has been abused and is prone to several distortions that we have to clear up. And that shouldn't surprise us. Um, the spiritual practices can be helpful, but they also are all prone to distortion. I mean, you might think of how often Jesus in his ministry is correcting a prevailing notion about a spiritual practice that has, come, that has become oppressive or harmful in the lives of people, like Sabbath or purification rituals or prayer or fasting. So we see Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 correcting assumptions about fasting, that it was about suffering or that it was impressive. So it's important we name a few things that fasting is just not about. And the first thing is that fasting, this might be surprising, but fasting is not about suffering. Many of us have inherited a spirituality where at least in the background, we have this idea, if it hurts, it's working, right? <laughs> suffering is thought to be in and of itself effectual. Also, side note, have you noticed how often this is tied to masculine metaphors? You know, it'll put hair on your chest, which first, gross. Second, <laughs> that's a very patriarchal thought, right? Like, oh, the, what's good for you makes you more manly. So well, that's weird. Okay, just worth noting. There are no brownie points for self-harm. And we have to be really clear about this. Rather, fasting is about the turning toward God in expectation of help. So first, fasting's not about suffering. Second, fasting's not impressive in and of itself. Uh, whether we're fasting from food or from social media or some activity, the giving up is not some form of athleticism uh, because giving up may or may not actually make us healthy, good, whole persons. We all know someone who's given up lots of things and has become embittered or tired or crushed. I think here of the novel The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, because in its early pages, we meet two monks, 
One is Father Farapont, and Father Farapont is a holy athlete par excellence. He fasts continuously. He avoids all pleasures of the flesh, and he looks down on the lazy younger generation and is generally just terrifying to everyone in the community. His much fasting has not made him good in the slightest. And we also meet Elder Zosima, this beautiful, gentle soul who radiates love and wisdom. And we just see continuously feasting with people, feasting and feasting and feasting. So it's really important that we note that while fasting can help us, neither it nor any spiritual practice is impressive, and they don't automatically make us good. Third, fasting is not about trying to get God to move by manipulation. It's not a hunger strike. And this is really important to say because it can feel like, uh, oh, okay, I need something, and if I hurt really bad, then God will notice and help me. Uh, That's not a way to get God's attention. The whole assumption of fasting is that God is already with us, and it is we who need help turning our attention and hearts to God's presence. Fourth, fasting is embodied, but this is really important. It is not about altering the body to fit a paradigm of beauty, especially in our age of obsession with the body and appearance and health. Fasting can take on really unhealthy connotations, and abstaining from food may not be a wise choice given your health or your relationship with your body. We need a lot of wisdom here. As a people largely unfamiliar with fasting, we need some help if we would want to get started here. So I don't know, maybe you're like, great, Ben, fun. I'll be back next week, but this will never happen. Fine, okay, that's cool. But if you were like, oh, okay, uh, tell me more. There's loads of practical wisdom that just has not gotten handed down to us culturally. Uh, and so we kind of need to reintroduce ourselves. Uh, first, let me recommend the book Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. It has a lot of really good wisdom on many classical Christian practices, including fasting. But I want to cover a few important points. First, Uh, Like we just said, it's important to note that our culture has a really complicated relationship with food and body image and worth. These things have gotten tied together in weird ways. And there's, let me just, I just want to so underscore this. There is no reason to engage in a practice that might cause you psychological distress or trigger body shame or self-harm. There's just no reason. There's no reason to do it. If you experiment with fasting and you find any of those issues coming up, just don't. To stop. You don't need to. It might be wise to bring this to a qualified counselor or therapist, or just set aside fasting until it feels like it's safe or good to return, if ever. Second, fasting should be medically safe, or choose an alternative to giving up food. If you have any reason why abstaining from food is unwise for your health, there's no reason to take the risk. There's nothing particularly special about abstaining from food, except it's, it's a pretty present thing for all of us. So you could try instead fasting from media or fasting from some foods like a sweet or a coffee or alcohol. Uh, Or here's a fun one, fast from needing to have the last word. That's good in in like business meetings. If you do choose to fast, don't be heroic about the length. Most people will start just by omitting one meal. You know, skip lunch or skip one breakfast or skip one dinner. Uh, See how it goes. Ease into it. Drink a lot of water. Be hydrated. There's no reason to go beyond a full day, usually, ever. 
Our bodies are built differently. Some people may find missing one meal quite enough, and some people might, uh, might feel like they could go longer. But use wisdom here. Generally, fasting should be a matter of discernment in community. Uh, so if you feel like you are interested in fasting, I would suggest talking about it with a trusted friend or a spiritual advisor uh, or, or a therapist or a group just to avoid excessive or unwise fasting. Uh, I think secrecy here can get really wonky. Um, we, you know, we might be prone to uh, go, go a little bit too hard. Expect that giving up is going to be a springboard that reveals a lot of things. Uh, so this is kind of how fasting works. You give something up, and your body will start to talk to you in all kinds of ways. Some of it will be hunger. You know, oh, I'm hungry. Well, for me, often when I'm fasting, I just, that's when I notice how often I just wander by the fridge. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'll be working, and suddenly I'm like, I'm at the fridge again. How did I get here? There was one time, I'm, I'm not making this up, I was, I was fasting, and I found myself at a donut shop with a half-eaten donut, and I was like, I don't... I don't remember planning to do this. This just happened. Um, so your body will just autopilot and talk to you. And those are great things to notice. Okay. But other things that will happen, uh, you'll find yourself, you know, getting cranky. You know, crankiness will come up. Uh, and you'll start to notice, like, wow, when I'm not comfortable, I get cranky. Or when I am not comfortable, I get sad. Or when I'm not getting what I want, I go here for comfort, right? Those are really interesting things to come up and bring into conversation with God. Uh, whatever you experience, bring it into conversation with God. I say this about fasting, but I also say about all the practices. Whatever happens, it worked, because it brings things up for your awareness. It brings things up for your relationship with God. Okay, well, we did it. We talked about fasting in the middle of Advent, which I know was a little weird. But I want to underscore for us that this practice can be a really valuable tool for reintegrating our bodies with what we're experiencing so we can be here now. Fasting can be a means for training ourselves to look to God for abundance when we fear scarcity. And fasting can be a form of joining in with others in their cries for equity. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to ask, give us this day our daily bread. It's a communal prayer. And we know that we live in a world where daily bread is not shared equitably, where some live in abundance while others do not have what they need. And so fasting could be a form of joining this prayer for our daily bread with our bodies. A prayer for enough. A prayer for equity. A prayer that joins all who hunger and thirst for justice. Fasting can get our bodies in on that prayer, saying before God with our whole person, your kingdom come, your will be done right here among us just as it is in heaven. Give all of us this day what we need. Plenty for all. Will you pray with me? God, we do pray for your plenty for all. Where we hunger, we pray you would meet us. Where we thirst, we pray you would fill us. And in all things, we pray that our hearts and our minds and our bodies would be before you, integrated and whole. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, 
and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Thank you.